From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. If I were writing the book again, I think I would make a little bit more of the fact that she was 36 at the time because she had a lot to risk. There's one level of hearing the voice of God inside of you, which, again, I think can be a completely ordinary thing. It's another thing to actually accept that you heard the word of God inside of you. And then it's quite another thing to be willing to share it with someone else. And then it's quite another thing to actually let it change the direction of your life. There's a lot of courage, I think, in all of that. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome back as our guest John M. Sweeney. He's an award-winning author of over 40 books, including The Complete Francis of Assisi, The People of God series biographies, James Martin S.J., In the Company of Jesus, and Nicholas Black Elk, Medicine Man, Catechist, Saint, and new from St. Martin's Press and Penguin Random House Audio, Thomas Merton, An Introduction to His Life, Teachings, and Practices. John Sweeney speaks regularly at literary and religious conferences, retreat and conference centers, and churches. John is a Catholic, married to a rabbi. Their interfaith marriage has been profiled in the national media. Living in Milwaukee, he writes regularly for America Magazine and The Tablet, and and he is also editor-at-large at at Orbis Books. John M. Sweeney, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. It's great to be with you. We're speaking today about your most recent book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Night, Active Love. And I was so happy to read this book because... Like you say in the introduction and throughout the book, I think I had a very superficial knowledge of who Mother Teresa was, what she stood for, what animated and motivated her. I think that I had the Reader's Digest details at the at the sort of top level. But your book helped me to go deeper and to really begin to understand what drove her, but also how she faced obstacles and how she thought about her mission. So I'm grateful to you on many levels, but I want to make sure also as we begin our conversation that our audience understands who Mother Teresa was to the extent that we can. But I want to say one thing at the outset. You make plain that there is a Mother Teresa the person and there is also Mother Teresa the media figure. So we will be dancing with that dynamic throughout our conversation, and I want to make sure that our listeners are aware of that dynamic as well. So we're going to be occasionally doing things that are factual and occasionally doing things that are more media-centric in this conversation. But why don't we begin with some of the basic biographical details? When was Mother Teresa born? Where was she born? And was she born with the name Teresa, or how should we be thinking of her in her early years? Yeah, thanks, David. I'm glad we're going to get to all of that. Those are the points that I was led to write the book for all those reasons. She was born in 1910. So her life is one of those fascinating lives that span the 20th century. She was born in 1910. She was born in what we now call North Macedonia, 
It was part of the Ottoman Empire at the time when she was born. It was August of 1910. Her father was a businessman. Her mother was devoutly religious. Those two facts and two figures were very important for her. One of the things that I try to say at the outset in the opening chapter where I talk about her setting and her growing up is that we have pictures of her just like we have pictures of all of our kids doing the sort of ordinary things. We have a picture of her in a Christmas play. We have a picture of her from high school graduation. And she led a happy, ordinary childhood by all indications, with a couple of exceptions. And the primary exception would surround her father. Her father, the businessman who was also a nationalist, an Albanian nationalist, who ended up probably dying as a result of that. So those are just a couple of the sort of parameters of the early years. And so her childhood, as you say, was a happy childhood. We should also stress it was a 20th century childhood. So in contrast to those who may be saints from earlier centuries, her life was more documented and is more available, both in probably pictures and other sorts of records than maybe many other saints that we know. Now, those are my words, not yours. But when I say that, am I understanding one of the early distinctions that we can say about Mother Teresa? Most certainly. And that's one of the, you alluded to this in the introduction. That's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was that the ubiquity of Mother Teresa sometimes gets in the way of our knowing her and it also enhances our knowing her. You mentioned how you had a maybe superficial understanding of her. And I think you would be along with a couple of other billion people in, on the planet in the 1990s, in her last decade, who could have said such a thing. I mean, she was the Michael Jordan of religious life. <laughs> so that is part of knowing her and not knowing her. So that's part of why I wanted to write the book. But yes, it's a 20th century life, which relates to the name she took religiously, for instance. It relates to the way in which certain popes had uh, profound influence on her. It relates to the role that television played in telling us all about her and also hiding who she really was. Well, and we mentioned that she was born in what is now known as Macedonia, but she very early felt a call to religious life. And I wonder if you tell our listeners a little bit about how that manifested for her. Yeah. And I also realized that I didn't answer part of your initial question, which is the name that she was given as a child. She went by a middle name, Ganja. Ganja is the name that, that she was called in the family. I'm not really that proficient with Albanian, but I think I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, yeah, she began to sense this call to religious life, which, of course, many people do. That in itself is not, un, is not uh, extraordinary. As a teenager, as a young teenager, she felt this call. And it also is not extraordinary that one's parents might resist that call. A lot of families go through this because they worry that their daughter might not be able to grow up and get married and have children of her own. And they worry about the severity of a religious life. You want your child to be happy and to be comfortable and all those things. And particularly 100 years ago, religious life was associated with less comfort than a secular life or a secular life. So anyway, yes, she felt this call to religious life. And that meant to the religious life of a sister, of a religious sister at a very early age. And she never deviated from that, even though she didn't get a lot of encouragement at home. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the award-winning author, John M. Sweeney, about his most recent book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Night, Active Love. 
Well, so she feels this call to religious life to become a religious sister, and that entails a change in geography. She begins her studies and her training to be a novice sister. Talk to us about that process. Where does that call lead her to her initial years as a religious sister? Well, they led her to Ireland, first of all. It was, it was when she turned 18 that Gansha applied to the Sisters of the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is, the acronym is IBVM, or the Sisters of Loretto, which is what we tend to know them as more often. And the religious congregation was based in Ireland, uh, founded by an early 17th century English woman named Mary Ward, who was inspired by Ignatian spirituality and other things. So Ganja is sent to Ireland to begin this religious life. That is a piece of the life of Mother Teresa that many people don't know. I mean, because we simply just associate her with her religious life in India, but it began in Ireland. Well, I think one thing that you really spell out well in the book that I hadn't had completely clear, and maybe my listeners won't have completely clear, is what it means to join a religious order with regard to what we normally think of as the hierarchy of the church. When she joins a religious order, what changes in her relationship to bishops and archbishops? That's interesting. I'm not sure if I know the answer to that, David. She certainly didn't have a lot of contact with anyone of a bishop or archbishop kind of stature when she was in her Albanian environment. She was of a Catholic minority in her Albanian environment. And so when she went to Ireland, one thing that was profoundly different, remember the Ireland of 100 years ago, I mean, even remember the Ireland of 20 years ago, but even more so 100 years ago, she arrived in 1928 and it was a predominantly, overwhelmingly Catholic country. And that must have given her a sense of relief to be in such a such a comfortably Catholic environment, at least for a brief period of time. It had just been seven years earlier in 1921 that British rule of Ireland had finally come to an end. And the Catholicism that was all throughout the culture, throughout the schools, throughout all the public institutions in Ireland was a great change for her from Albania. I'm incredibly grateful for your answer, John, because it was much better than the question that I asked. And I'm thankful for the information that you just gave us. And so let me now build on what you just just said. So moving from a place where she was in a religious minority to a place where she could be visibly Catholic in a visibly Catholic culture, do we have any sense of how that affected her? We don't have, no, I don't have, a. I mean, someone might have a sense of that. I don't have a sense precisely of how that affected her. Because she then ended up spending many, many decades, the vast majority of her life, as, again, a minority Catholic in a predominantly, you know, Hindu and somewhat Muslim country. So I see it more as a brief interlude. I mean, it must have, you know, it was part of her religious formation. It was part of her schooling. And it must have been a nurturing environment that she probably needed to prepare to go back to the desert, as we might call it. So I think of it more in those terms. Well, and so now let us turn briefly to what you just mentioned. So after her initial novitiate training, she goes to live her life as a religious sister of Laredo in India, mainly in the cities of Calcutta and Darjeeling, as I understand it. And so talk to us about that portion of her life. What happens when she gets there and how do the early years there begin to shape her? Well, she went as a school teacher. And by all accounts, she was a terrific school teacher, and she loved that work. 
So that's an important episode that goes on for many years for Mother Teresa, is teaching young children and enjoying being an instructor and educating them. There are a few episodes where we see her walking around in Calcutta, where we see her noticing the poor and some of those kinds of things. But if you were telling this story in cinematography, you would more have her looking out the window from within the cloister near the classroom and seeing and being interested in what she sees, but not actually stepping outside. That's fairly accurate. She was active in the classroom. That's where her activity took place. And that's what she was called to. That's what she was trained to do. She also takes the, takes her religious name at that time. And this might be a place to talk about that. Please do. Yeah. Tell us about how she comes to take the name Teresa. I find this one of the more interesting stories that, that I came across. I was superficial in my understanding of Mother Teresa before I researched and wrote the book in the sense that I didn't know where, she, where the name had come from. And I found the details of it interesting. Many of your listeners will know that the most popular saint of the early 20th century was Teresa de Sioux, who was a French nun who had written, sort of accidentally, written an autobiography called Story of a Soul. It was published accidentally because it was published after her death. She died at a young age and it was published after her death. And it became an international bestseller, sort of an extraordinary bestseller. It was unusual for a religious to write an autobiography, for one thing, and then quite unusual for the unique message of Story of the Soul about being a little flower, about having a little love for God and for others that, that is on every page of Story of the Soul, just moved the hearts of people who did not usually perhaps even read religious literature at the time. So Teresa de Sioux is the one from whom Mother Teresa got her inspiration, her charism, her spirit of love and of love for others and wanting to just be a little spark of love in the world. So she takes her name, but she doesn't take Therese. And the reason she doesn't take Therese is simply because there was another sister of Loretto at that time who was already a novice in actually in Loretto, Italy at the time. But she had the name Therese. And so Teresa took it in the Spanish spelling instead, which is seems like a sort of a fun accident. Again, to use my Michael Jordan analogy, it's if a basketball player joins a new team and someone already has his or her number, then you have to take a different number for your jersey. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John M. Sweeney. He's an award-winning author of over 40 books, and today we're talking about his most recent, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Knight, Active Love. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying this conversation, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. 
There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with John M. Sweeney. He's an award-winning author of over 40 books. He speaks regularly at literary and religious conferences, retreat and conference centers, and churches. And today we're talking about his most recent book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Night, Active Love. Well, in the first segment, we were really setting the stage about where Mother Teresa came from, what her childhood was like, and how she received the call to enter the Sisters of Laredo. But while she was there teaching in India with the Sisters of Laredo, she's on a train ride between Calcutta and Darjeeling, and she receives a call from God to do something more. And I was really struck by the way that you describe this in the book, because when you say that she heard it, you then parenthetically say, and there's no need to put heard in quotation marks. And so I want to ask you about why you phrased it that way. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. And let me just back up very slightly because I want to give context. So the context is that for the last eight years, Mother Teresa has been teaching mostly geography to these students, these young girls at St. Mary's High School in Calcutta. And she's been observing poverty behind the school walls, you might say. Then about three weeks before this day that we are talking about, in August of 1946, there were three days of deadly riots in Calcutta between Hindus and Muslims on the day that we're talking about on that train, which is September 10, 1946. And the reason I mentioned the date in particular is not because I'm a geek about dates, but because that day would be referenced by Mother Teresa throughout her life and is still referenced by the religious who live her life today all over the world as a touchpoint, as the day when it all began. And it was on that train, as you said, from Calcutta to Darjeeling to attend her annual spiritual retreat, that she receives this revelation from God, what she came to call or refer to as a call within a call. She's the only saint or religious figure that I know of for whom we we use that phrase. So if you ever call, if you ever hear of a call within a call, it's Mother Teresa that people are talking about. And the reason why, to get right to what, you, to what you asked there at the end of the question, is that I suggest to the reader, because I'm assuming that my readers are 21st century people who maybe are similar to me, that we tend not to take seriously anymore when people talk about hearing things from God or revelations from God. We tend to be skeptics, even those of us who are religious or spiritual people, of which I am both, I tend to be skeptical sometimes or often about such a thing. And so what I want to suggest to the reader, and I do in the book, is that the idea of receiving a private message from God, which Mother Teresa did on September 10th, 1946, and which then completely changed her life and frankly changed the lives of millions and millions of people all over the world, is a detail that isn't just an exaggeration of telling the life of a saint. Because many people, not just saints, experience revelations from God in quiet and introspective moments. And that's what it was. It wasn't a lightning bolt. It wasn't a voice calling down from the train. It wasn't the train conductor saying that you've just received a telegram from God. It doesn't have to be silly. It doesn't have to be anything that unusual. But she referred to it as an inner revelation, as something that she just heard in her heart, in her soul, in her mind, and it changed her life. So I, I don't have any trouble accepting that. Well, let me say as a reader why I appreciated so much how you framed this moment. 
because as we look forward to Mother Teresa's life, she doesn't romanticize this moment. She doesn't make it a moment of great ego, but she does begin to refer to it and her followers begin to refer to it as Inspiration Day. And, and I'm a person who, in my body, I suffer from asthma. And so for me, inspiration, the indrawing of breath, when I try and run, when I try and do physical activities, I have to make sure that I have enough breath for the journey or for the task at hand. And so what I took from the way that you framed this and as you described how Mother Teresa thought about it, it was almost as if in that moment on the train she was drawing in breath for the journey that she would then take for the rest of her life. Now, these are my words, not yours. But when I say it that way, that was what I received from you as a reader. And I'm wondering, did I get it right or would you say it in a different way? No, I love how you just said it. I like to pretend like that's how I said it. <laughs> and so I, I think that is terrific, David. And this is one of the ways in which we all can receive inspiration, I think, from Mother Teresa. And part of it is exactly, as you said, the ordinariness of its reception and of the way in which it was and still is talked about among the missionaries of charity as a day of inspiration that began everything else. And by the way, I, sh I shouldn't leave that call within a call just hanging out there. The idea of the call within a call is that she knew that she was already doing God's work. She had already been following her call, her vocation, and surely felt, and from her letters, we know that she felt that she was doing the work of God already at St. Mary's and in Calcutta and in her school teaching. But now the call and the work would change. I mean, she was, she was getting a new direction from God in, in this message that she was receiving. And in that new direction, she now has discernment to do because she is a vowed member of the Sisters of Laredo. And now she has to begin to determine whether she does this call within a call within that order or whether she's being drawn to found something new. And if you would briefly tell us a little bit about that discernment process, I think that would be helpful for our listeners. Yeah, I will. I also want to say that she was 36 years old when this happened. And I don't think, honestly, that I make enough of that in the book. If I were writing the book again, I think I would make a little bit more of the fact that she was 36 at the time because she had a lot to risk. There's one level of hearing the voice of God inside of you, which, again, I think can be a completely ordinary thing. It's another thing to actually accept that you heard the word of God inside of you. And then it's quite another thing to be willing to share it with someone else. And then it's quite another thing to actually let it change the direction of your life. So there's a lot of courage, I think, in all of that. The age of 36, particularly 75 years ago, the, no, more than that, sorry. Anyway, 80 years ago was midlife. To be willing to change your direction in midlife for something that um, to others might seem so crazy. And surely she knew this would seem crazy to, to cloistered nuns, I think is courageous. And I would make more of that. Yes, she then goes through a period of, I think it's about 18 months. I'd have to look at my own chronology in the book, but it's about 18 months of talking to her confessors. There's more than one of them. Also writing letters to her archbishop, who starts out as a skeptic and then eventually becomes an advocate. But it's a period of, we were talking about Inspiration Day as September 10, 1946, and it's not until August of 1948. So it's almost two years later that she ends up receiving permission from the Vatican, all the way from the Vatican, the Sacred Congregation for Religious. It was Pope Pius XII at that time. 
permission to leave Loretto for the slums of Calcutta. And there's a whole lot that happens in there. I don't remember how many pages in my book that takes up, but I'm sure it's too few. I'm guessing it's six or seven pages probably in my book, but there could be a book of 80 or 100 pages that tell simply that story. For instance, I'll just tease one little thing. that One of her confessors is a priest whose last name is Van Exum, who is one of the characters in the story. And there's a brief time when Mother Teresa is spending so much time counseling with him about this process and what's going on and what to do next, that Mother Teresa's fellow sisters start to have some suspicions that maybe there's something inappropriate going on between the priest and the nun, which is not necessarily unusual that they would have such a suspicion because a nun and a priest are not supposed to be spending too much inordinate time together. But on the other hand, there was a lot to discern. And so that, but that is part of the story of Mother Teresa is that there was a lot to discern at that time. She not only demonstrates that courage I was mentioning before, but she demonstrates her fortitude and her strength also in the way that she writes letters to the archbishop and urges him to take it directly to the Pope and follows up, says, why haven't you done this yet? And please, this is urgent and I need to follow the word of God. You know, I mean, if you're hearing the word of God inside of you, you want to follow it as soon as possible. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John M. Sweeney. He's an award-winning author of over 40 books, and he is a sought-after speaker in various religious contexts, conference centers, and churches. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Night, Active Love. So I really appreciated this aspect of your book, Teresa of Calcutta, because it helped me to understand the politics, I don't really know a better word, of religious orders in the church, because they exist both under the authority of the hierarchical episcopal structure, but they also have a kind of independent existence from the hierarchical structure. And just becoming a religious sister, just becoming a nun or a vowed religious woman doesn't mean that you have a kind of universal authority or acceptance. You are part of a community and if you want to then branch out from that community, you need to disentangle yourself. And in Mother Teresa's case, she needed to found an entirely new community. Now, am I understanding the process correctly, or would you see it in a slightly different way? No, you are saying it correctly. There's two terms that I'll throw out to your listeners, which is secularization and exclaustration. So secularization would mean leaving the religious order of which she was a member in order to follow this new direction. Exclaustration would mean remaining bound to the vows that she had taken in the religious order in which she already was a member, but changing the means of exercising those vows. So there was great hesitation among her spiritual directors and among the Archbishop of Calcutta at the time to allow anything resembling secularization. She shouldn't be leaving the Sisters of Loretto, particularly because they wanted to have a period of discernment, of further discernment. Could this woman actually have any idea what it is that she's entering into? You know, they suspected her of excessive piety and desire that might not be fulfilled actually by feet on the ground and by the actual ability to do the kind of work that she seems to feel called to do. Who could ever think that this little five-foot Albanian woman was really going to go out and do what it is that God was telling her to do? I can't imagine that anybody thought that, other than her, anybody thought that she could pull that off or do it for more than a few days at a time. So I totally understand the 
the hesitation to allow her to be secularized. So, so the idea was certainly for a period of discernment that she needed to remain within her vows as a sister of Loretto. But what ended up happening was that she founded a, a new religious order, the Missionaries of Charity, who we've all seen, you know, with their blue and white saris, which became a very different way of being a religious than what she had been before. And there was something particular about the missionaries of charity. They took the standard vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But then you also note in your book, Teresa of Calcutta, that they take a fourth vow. And I wonder if you would talk to us about what that fourth vow is and what it entails. Well, not only were they to be poor, but they were to identify with the poor. And that's a powerful expression of the poverty of a religious And I compare it in my book to St. Francis of Assisi. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, who Mother Teresa often looked to for inspiration as well. St. Francis, 800 years ago, founded a religious order almost accidentally. Didn't really set out to found an order so much as he set out to follow what he also had received as a voice, as a revelation, as a message from God to identify with the poor. And That meant getting rid of all of his stuff. And if you wanted to join him in his work, which people did want to do rather quickly because they noticed something authentic at work, then you needed to get rid of all your stuff and you needed to no longer carry money in your pockets and you needed to live as one of the poor. So that was also part of the calling of a missionary of charity. And there's a phrase that both Mother Teresa uses, but also you quote it later in the book from one of the sisters of charity, one of the missionaries there. That they are called to meet Christ in Christ's distressing disguise among the poor. And I wonder if you could unpack that phrase for us, because it was very powerful for me as a reader. Yeah, no, thanks for pointing that out. I love that phrase as well. And it turns me to the Beatitudes, the teachings of Jesus, which we find in Matthew chapter 5. And what I'm about to say starts to maybe jump ahead to what we're going to end up talking about a little bit in Mother Teresa's spiritual darkness, because it's an essential theme of her life. But I think, you know, when Jesus says, you know, goes up on the mountain and says to the crowds, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the weak and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think in the 21st century and probably in almost any century, we tend to read those words as something that happens rather quickly. We tend to read them as you're sad now, but you'll be happy very soon. Or as soon as you hear this message from Jesus, you will be happy. You know, you're poor in spirit right now, but cheer up. Um, You're mourning right now, but feel better. You're feeling meek right now because, you know, you're having trouble at work or whatever. You know, it's okay. But we almost tend to hear it in a self-help context. But I don't think that's what it meant. I don't think that's what the missionaries of charity understand. I don't think that's what Mother Teresa understands. And this is part of the context for understanding spiritual darkness that becomes a part of her life. Is that that to be in poverty, to be mourning, to be meek is a condition. It's a condition of life. And it's a condition of life that was every moment of every day for most of the people that Mother Teresa was working with every day on the streets of Calcutta. It wasn't just a cheer up and it'll all get better. One of the most striking illustrations of that for me in your book, Teresa of Calcutta, was an example of a man who had lived his entire life on the streets of Calcutta, was terminally ill, 
And you mentioned that he came in with his body covered in maggots. And, and there's a point at which, as he's received into the Missionaries of Charity, he makes the comment, I've lived my entire life as an animal, but now I will die like an angel. And I was so struck by that because it so illuminates the kind of way in which this laser focus on the poor and identifying with the distressing disguise of Jesus in the poor was really the one capturing idea of the Missionaries of Charity. Yeah. It is. And it also, it puts your finger right on, frankly, what a lot of progressive folks, and I count myself one of them, have a trouble have trouble with Mother Teresa. I have some progressive friends who think it's crazy that I spent two years writing a biography of Mother Teresa, of Mother Teresa, Sister Teresa of Calcutta, because they know that I identify as a progressive Christian. And they think that the big mistake that Mother Teresa made is that she ought to have said, why are all these children in the streets? Let's change the structure of Indian society. Let's build more hospitals. Let's build more infrastructure. Let's lobby government officials to make changes that will simply result in less poverty and more social services, etc. Well, that wasn't her calling. I totally understand that argument. If you're standing on the shore of a river and there's babies floating down the river and your job is to pluck them out and then take care of them instead of saying, why the hell are all these babies in the river? It wasn't her job to ask a whole lot about why the babies were in the river. It was to take them out of the river. And we see in stories like the one that you just related that this was profound and this was life-changing. And in the context of 20th century Calcutta, it made perfect sense. Then as the missionaries of charity grew all over the world and moved into the poorest of places in urban environments all over the world, it also was essential work then and there as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John M. Sweeney. He's an award-winning author of over 40 books, including books on Francis of Assisi, Father James Martin, and Nicholas Black Elk. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Night, Active Love. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying this conversation, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with John M. Sweeney. He's an award-winning author of over 40 books and is a sought-after speaker at religious conferences, retreat and conference centers, and churches. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Night, Active Love. Well, we've now been speaking in the last segment about the founding of Mother Teresa's order, the Missionaries of Charity, and how it became laser-focused on the poorest of the poor as we, we use this phrase, the distressing disguise that Christ shows to us in the poor and wanting to meet Christ in the poorest of the poor. And for a period of time, the movement is growing there in India, and various sites are established in the charism of the missionaries of charity. But then something happens in 1969 that I want to make sure our listeners are aware of. A British journalist by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge comes and does a five-day visit at one of the sites of the Missionaries of Charity and creates a documentary for the BBC and puts Mother Teresa on television. 
Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what was going on there and what stayed the same and maybe what changed for Mother Teresa in the wake of that? Yeah, I will. I will do that, David. And let me also tell you, just because I think you'll get a kick out of this, that there was a time when I was in high school when my best friend's mother was a buddy of Malcolm Muggeridge. She was an English professor at the local college, and she would go to England every summer, and they spent time together. And I think they even spent time on a dais together giving lectures and things. And so my friend's mother knew that I was a reader as a high school student and that I was sensitive to the kinds of things that she thought were important. And she said to me one day, John, Mr. Malcolm Muggeridge is coming for dinner on Friday night, and I'm wondering if you'd like to join us. And I was a, I, I might have been sensitive to these things when I was 15 or 16, but I also was still a kid and turned my nose up at it and thought, oh, I've never heard of that as I don't think he's very important. And and that sounds really boring. So I actually, I missed the chance of meeting Malcolm Muggeridge. But yes, Malcolm Muggeridge is one of those legendary figures of 20th century British media, journalism, as well as spiritual writing, because he had a, a profound religious conversion of his own that ended up being impacted by Mother Teresa. And as you said, in 1969, he took a crew to Calcutta. And he did that because he just simply wanted good television. I mean, at the time, he was this famous British media personality who was known for making good television and known a little bit for the interview that would have the gotcha moment. So one wonders what exactly he was expecting when he went to see Mother Teresa or what could have happened. But he was known for humor and sarcasm, as well as a certain political conservatism and a lot of intellectual doubt. That was part of his shtick. So to go and meet this devout woman was an interesting choice. And it had a life-changing effect on him because he met the real thing. Of course, I think people are already realizing that that's what happened. He was a recent convert at the time to Protestant Christianity from a sort of famous agnosticism. He ended up moving towards Catholicism as a result of Mother Teresa. And they kept a relationship for decades afterwards, which is also interesting. But it was a 50 minutes long BBC Two fall of 1969 documentary, and it was called Something Beautiful for God, which is probably a title that a lot of your listeners have heard because it then became a book that Muggeridge uh, published called Something Beautiful for God. And in the wake of this, Mother Teresa becomes not simply a 20th century religious person, but she becomes a 20th century religious personality. She begins to ascend not just on the national stage, but the international stage. And that begins to affect her ministry as well in terms of those who are taking notice of the work that she's doing and those who want to either fund or criticize the work that she's doing. And I wonder if you'd speak a little bit to that. Well, yes, because it was 1969. Color television hadn't been around for very long, but it was a full-color television broadcast of someone doing, in the latter part of the 20th century, extraordinary things that saints from the Middle Ages might have been doing hundreds of years earlier. And it was in an environment of Calcutta, India, that I think everyone understood intuitively, if not factually, was the poorest place on the planet. And so you saw this little Albanian woman bending over in the gutters of Calcutta and picking children up out of the gutters and then stroking their hair as if she is their loving mother, because that's exactly what her approach was. 
And this was just arresting for human beings who are otherwise commuting to work and buying the latest gadgets and thinking about a new car and living in the suburbs and doing whatever it is that we do. This was astonishing and arresting. It had a profound effect, as you say, as you suggest, that on the trajectory of all of a sudden, Mother Teresa became known all over the world and became a, a topic of conversation. And this then led to much greater influence for her, which had some political implications in the decades to come. But it also led to a quick and enormous growth of the missionaries of charity. Uh, it, you know, there's a very sort of good and bad result of this. But I, I think one of the conclusions, certainly, that I make in my book is that she is really the first great saint of the era of television. And one thing that I want to stress to our listeners is if they want to know more about this particular aspect, the media aspect, your book, Teresa of Calcutta, does a wonderful job of laying that out in plain language. And just to give listeners a taste of that, I want to ask you one more question on this particular tack, and that is Mother Teresa was a contemporary of two other spiritual personages that we tend to think of as also having a tremendous kind of media influence, and that would be Mahatma Gandhi and St. Pope John Paul II. And I wonder if you'd speak briefly about how her interactions with these two figures affected her development and the development of her ministry. Well, she didn't have a lot of interaction with Gandhi. She certainly was his contemporary for a brief time. But then Gandhi was gone by the time that the missionaries of charity really got going. So they, it was almost like a handing off from the one to the other. John Paul II, the Pope who started in the 1970s, became, by a sort of interesting confluence of various things, became her greatest champion, her very close friend. He was uh, that confluence I'm referring to are things like he was someone who understood the world stage. He certainly played a major role in the fall of communism through his influence in Poland in the late 1980s and early 1990s. He understood the power of television. He understood the power of the grand gesture and how television could capture this and send it out to the world. So he, he understood what happened to Mother Teresa in 1969 and the importance of that. He also, it's stating the obvious, but as Pope, he, of course, loved the work of religious all over the world. And so he, he was a proponent of all the work that, that a religious person should and could do. But he also was the Pope who made more saints than any other Pope in history. In fact, during his pontificate, he made more saints, in other words, canonized more saints and asked the faithful to, to appeal to the saints and to have a life that is in constant relationship with the saints than all other Popes before him combined. So he was, as a result of all of these factors, the natural partner for promoting the work of Mother Teresa. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John M. Sweeney. He's the award-winning author of over 40 books. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Night, Active Love. Well, I think if listeners know anything superficial about Mother Teresa, one of the things that they know is that after her death, there were many headlines that sort of were explaining that as more about her life was revealed and as people began to delve into her to her personal writings, her journals, 
that she expressed that for a number of years she was going through what we might call a dark night of the soul or a kind of absence of God, even though she was still doing this deeply religious work. And I will admit that was largely where my understanding of Mother Teresa began and ended. So I was especially struck by a quotation that you give us in your book, Teresa of Calcutta, where she's speaking to her Jesuit director, Father Neuner, in 1962, where Mother Teresa says, if I ever become a saint, I will surely be one of darkness. I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. And that gave me a completely different way of thinking about this kind of dark night of the soul narrative. And I wonder if you would speak to me and my listeners about some of these connections, both the dark night of the soul narrative that we got after her death, but also her saying that she wanted to be a saint of the darkness. Tell us more about that. She knew the darkness intimately. This is what I was suggesting earlier when I was talking about the Beatitudes, and I think a way that we might come to understand the Beatitudes that isn't quite so cheery as the way I think we normally read them or hear them. It was in the 1940s, actually, that she began to talk about darkness. And it's a little bit different at the beginning. In the 1940s, this is before the Missionaries of Charity. She talks about experiencing darkness, but it's more in the sense of uh, that understanding of the Beatitudes that's typical for us, I think. It was, it's more in the sense of having difficulty and having difficulty and needing to overcome it. Because in those instances in the 1940s, she also talks about being enormously happy. So no one could really psychoanalyze her and say, well, she was suffering from depression or she was undiagnosed or something. But then you were referring to a 1962 communication. It was a year earlier, I think, with the same confessor, the same Jesuit priest, that she, and I quote this also in the book, I know, where she says, Father, it's really since 1949 or 1950 that I've had this terrible sense of loss. And then she calls it an untold darkness and she calls it a loneliness and a continual longing for God. And she refers to it as a pain deep down in my heart. And then darkness, and she calls it darkness. Now, this is not the darkness of having to overcome some difficulty, but yet I'm so happy of the 1940s. This is the darkness that corresponds exactly with when she leaves the cloister, she leaves teaching, she leaves uh, everything that she knows, and she goes out into the street, and she's completely identified with these people who are the poorest of the poor, who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, and truly those things, and she becomes one of them. So, yeah, it is this interesting identification with those to whom she ministers. And I know that she's also a saint of joy. And I know that we also have lots of photographs of her and video of her. The, uh, there's a couple of wonderful documentaries that any listener can find on YouTube that tell her story. Her beautiful face and her strong hands and the way that she would hug these children and these, the way that she would embrace uh, the dying but she was so identified, I think, with them that this spiritual darkness became natural and not just something that she had to get over or, and she never did get over. And there's a way in which her sainthood is this identification completely with this darkness and this meekness and this mourning and this poverty of spirit. And as you said at the beginning of this segment, we didn't learn about any of this until her cause for canonization was underway. And whenever there's a cause for canonization underway, there's an investigation of all of her writings. And so then all of a sudden, 
we were exposed to these letters to her confessors that we had never heard of before. So one of the reasons I wanted to write my book was I wanted to weave this theme of darkness all the way through the book because there really haven't been biographies of her since that discovery took place. And John, I want to take this identification that you mentioned in a slightly theological direction, if that's all right, because we've said throughout this conversation that one of the things that really animated her charism and the charism of the missionaries of charity was meeting Christ in Christ's distressing disguise. And I'll admit one of the most distressing moments in the story of Christ for me is when he's hanging on the cross and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in your answer, what I was hearing was that she was so identifying with the distressing disguise of Christ, Christ in utter extremity, that she maybe lived for a majority of her life in that phrase, my God, you have forsaken me. Now, when I make that connection, does that feel off or does that feel solid to you? No, I think that feels completely solid to me. And in the final chapter of my book, I call it the afterlife. I talk about how we still don't really understand her. And frankly, it could have developed further this theme that one of the reasons why we don't understand her is because I don't know how most of us could possibly identify with what you just described. But there is a profound work to be done in the world to identify with the poor and with those who mourn and with those who meek, which is not just to tell them to cheer up and get over it, but to actually identify with them so profoundly in this way, as you refer to it as Christ on the cross, but also in the way of St. Teresa of Calcutta. So I'm aware that when a very charismatic figure founds a new movement, oftentimes that movement, that organization, that institution has a real difficulty outliving its founder and moving on in the wake of their, either their stepping away from leadership or their demise. And I realize this is not the focus of your book, Teresa of Calcutta, but I wonder if you can help my listeners understand where are the missionaries of charity going now in the wake of the death of Teresa of Calcutta? How is that ministry continuing to grow and develop? Or has it met some obstacles now that she is no longer the very visible sort of center point of that ministry? You're right that my book does not address that at all. But I don't see the missionaries of charity as having really had to pause or hiccup much at all after the death of Teresa of Calcutta. And by the way, that was exactly 25 years ago. It was September of 1997. I don't know if people caught that a month ago. You and I are recording this in the month of October of 2022. We just celebrated the 25th anniversary of her death a month ago, and I was a little bit sad that it didn't get noticed as much as it should have. The 25th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana was noticed a heck of a lot more. She died exactly a week before Mother Teresa. But anyway, after the death of Mother Teresa, you would think that there would have been difficulty because, yes, in religious orders, there very often is, particularly those that are founded by charismatic figures and public figures, but not so which is to their credit and to Mother Teresa's credit in the way that she created formation and the leadership that she created around her. The theme that animates missionary of charity communities all over the world is I thirst. You know, to go back to Christ on the cross, Jesus said from the cross, I thirst. And those words, simply I thirst, appear above the crucifix behind the altar in the chapel of every missionaries of charity community. And that's their job. And so you'll find them in the poorest urban places all over the world still today. I wonder if you're willing to talk about this, 
How has the writing of this book and going into the story and the biography of Teresa of Calcutta, how has that affected you and your own walk? You described yourself earlier as both a spiritual and a religious person. How have you been affected by this work and this story? Well, it was while I was writing Teresa of Calcutta that my wife and I became very involved in settling Afghan refugee families, which we do here in Milwaukee. If I ever talk about this, I always very quickly also want to add that my wife is the one who really does the lion's share work of it. She's the organizer. She's the person who sits on phone calls, arguing with organizations locally and advocating and finding lawyers to help with immigration cases and all those kinds of things. I tend to go where I'm told. You know, I help someone learn how to drive. I help them move from one place to another. I take a guy to go and take his driving test or take someone to the doctor or whatever. But it's this work of helping the poor and the meek. Uh, and they are those who mourn also because these are all families that had to flee Afghanistan just a little bit more than a year ago. And they watched family members die and they worry every day about family that is still there. I think my work was of writing about Mother Teresa has really helped animate that work in me. I also have written several books about St. Francis of Assisi, and it took me back to my Franciscan principles and passion. I was drawn to Mother Teresa's love for St. Francis of Assisi as well. So that's kind of a short answer to your question, but I don't know how Mother Teresa could not inspire anyone who is willing to look around and see the problems that are all that are abundantly all around us and to remind me to be willing to be open and vulnerable because it's very easy to dip in and dip out and to not actually become vulnerable in the way that she was every day. Well, John M. Sweeney, I have long been a fan of your work and your writing. And I have to say, before I read your book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Knight, Active Love, I had a lot of cynicism about Mother Teresa. And I came to the story with that kind of 30,000 foot media view and some of the criticisms that we've alluded to in this conversation. I am so grateful to you for writing this book because you gave me a completely new set of dimensions with which to think about this figure. And it has affected me and my thinking about my own spirituality to consider and reconsider Mother Teresa in this way. Thank you so much for the time that you took to write this book, but thank you also especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. It's my honor to talk with you, David, and I, I appreciate you saying that. And I hope that everyone is able to listen to what Mother Teresa has to say, because as someone who does believe in saints and who turns to the saints every day in my own life, I think she still has things to say. We've been speaking today with John M. Sweeney. He's an award-winning author of over 40 books. He is uh, a sought-after speaker who speaks regularly at literary and religious conferences, retreating conference centers, and churches. Today, we've been talking about his most recent book, Teresa of Calcutta, Dark Night, Active Love. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. 
You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.